Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with Brene Brown. And there is a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Hi, it's Brene. Can you hear me? Hi, Brene. Hi. (laughs) It's Krista. Hi. Hi, Krista. (laughs) So great to be talking to you. Oh, God. I just, I've been looking forward to it. I just, I'm so happy. Thank you. (laughs) And I have to say, I'm sorry for this delay, although when I heard that you're a little bit late getting there, I said, oh, good, then I'm not late because I've been like, just got off the road, you know, the drill. I uh, do know the drill. (laughs) But I was so looking forward to like landing back to have this conversation with you. (laughs) Well, me too. I feel the same way. I'm, I'm, and yeah, and I just... Yeah, I've just been looking forward to it. It's a little, yeah. it's a balm yeah. for me. Oh, yeah. um, when did this book come out, Braving the Wilderness? Um, September of this year. So you're kind of over the big, big push, are you? Are you? You're not. Are you on tour still? No, I just wrapped up like the week before Thanksgiving. Oh, okay, good, good. So are you rested? Have you gotten rested? I have I have a couple more trips I have to I'm mm-hmm. leaving this afternoon for San Francisco and then mm-hmm. I've got to go to Atlanta next week and then I'm done for the year mm-hmm. which yeah you know you know the story yeah yeah but I you, I hard. think you even do, you do more than I do I've, I'm I'm in awe of you well it's the the awe is mutual <laughs> and the the, the the awe is mutual and the travel is overrated that's right <laughs> yes it is okay all right we should go here um Okay, we, we could just keep going on this for an hour. We but could it would be self-indulgent. Um, okay, so let's just plunge right in. Um, I, you know, Brene, I was, uh, I was amazed. I looked back at the transcript of the conversation we had in 2015, and I did not ask you the question I always ask, which is the spiritual back, background of your childhood. I, I asked you about. You know how how where you would trace in your in your childhood and in your earliest life um, an experience of shame, but but I was looking for what your answer was, and that means we get to do it now. So and and also it's all wrapped up in your writing about belonging. So it is, let's it start. It is so wrapped up. It's all yeah. wrapped up. It's right there. So 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 ha- if I ask you about the spiritual background of your childhood, expansively understood. Um, how how would you start to tell that story? I would say that I was baptized in the Episcopal Church. And we ended up moving to New Orleans when I was probably two. And I was put into Catholic school um, early on, kindergarten, first grade. I was one of the only non-Catholics in the entire school Mm -hmm. um, because this is a school kind of uptown New Orleans, um, very Catholic area. And so one day, and there was a lot of struggle with belonging around not being Catholic because not only was I not the (laughs) only, I was the only non-Catholic in this Catholic school. Well, and when was that? Was this like late 60s that you moved to New Orleans? Is that right? Yes, late 60s. I mean, people forget that in the 60s still, I mean, the whole Catholic 
it was it was radical for Catholics and Protestants to be talking to each other still. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Like I had yeah. friends. I had friends that um, I remember a friend that I still have today from New Orleans who said her parents didn't let her date Christians. Yeah. And I was like, what is we are we are Christians, right? And she's like, no, the other Christians. I'm like, oh, the non the non-Catholic Christians. Right. Got it. OK. Yeah. I had this very interesting experience in fourth grade when I got pulled out of my classroom and brought into this small room, and I was at Holy Name of Jesus. And when I walked in the room, I literally, my breath just got pulled out of my lungs because I thought it was God when I first looked. I was like, oh my God, this is the ultimate trip to the principal's office. This is God. But (laughs) what I realized is it was a bishop. (laughs) And... The bishop kind of introduced himself and asked me my name, and then an assistant or someone brought in a freshly mimeographed copy of the Nicene Creed. We -hmm. went over the Nicene Creed line Mm -hmm. by line, and then he said, well done, you're Catholic, and then sent a note home to my parents that said, I'm Catholic now. (laughs) And so... I became Catholic, I guess, in fourth grade, and then my parents followed suit, and kind of attended a Catholic church off and on through high school, went to a Catholic college. Hmm. And then, um, and that was kind of in the 80s where it was the birth of the religious right. And there was this conflation happening between politics and religion that made no sense to me. And so I completely left organized religion for maybe 25 years. All right. Found my way back to the Episcopal Church um, and where I'm a member now. That's who I first met. Do you remember when I was at your church I know. in Houston a couple of years ago? I know. Um, and as you write about, um, you know, you, you've always been very, I think, I, I think, you know, one of the many reasons that your work r- reaches people is that you, you write, the things you write about and do your research on, you're also completely open about how they are things you struggle with. And I think that, uh, you know, often you, you know, your your research is a way for you to, um, is, is this a very special way you have to delve into the things that that you're navigating and that, in fact, we are all navigating. Um, That's true. <laughs> you know, That's like, it turns out to be change. good for the rest of us. Um, and... But so in this in 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 your in your more recent writing in your new book um, Braving the Wilderness you you talk about your childhood and um, and you know the, the the story you just told about religious belonging which was so much the dynamics were so completely different in the 1960s even though it isn't that long ago plus you had moved to New Orleans which in 1969 the whole notion of racial belonging was oh uh, right at a at a yeah. kind of it's you know yet again at a new tumultuous stage, but at a new tumultuous stage, and um, and also your parents' divorce, and the feeling, and the not belonging, in your family, like the and 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 um and how that you know one thing you say is that you you do you name that as a spiritual, a spiritual crisis, um, and you said that not belonging in our families, and of course so many of this have just so many different permutations on this you say, is one of the most dangerous hurts. And it's somehow like right there behind the fact that belonging is such a crisis globally and in our culture and in our, all of our institutions. 
it's not really a question, but I know you can take it from there. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I had never thought about it, really. I had never thought about the concept of not belonging, mm-hmm. even though I lived it. I never thought about the concept of not belonging at home as being such a universal experience of pain yeah. until, I don't know how long ago, maybe eight or nine years ago, I was doing some research um, and I was in a middle school and I was doing focus groups with middle schoolers. And I was, I was actually just interested in trying to understand the difference between belonging and fitting in. Yeah. Because I was very surprised to learn that one of the biggest barriers to belonging is fitting in, is this need to kind of assess a situation, acclimate, change who we are in order to, you know, cajole people into giving us a sense of connection um, and acceptance. And so I was asking these middle schoolers what the difference was, what they thought the difference was between fitting in and belonging. And they just had these like incredibly simple and profound answers. You know, fitting in is when you want to be a part of something. Belonging is when others want you. Mm-hmm. Um, they just they just mm-hmm. rattled one off after the other, and I was so taken aback. And then a young girl raised her hand and said, "You know, Miss, it's really hard not to fit in or belong at school, but not belonging at home is the worst." Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when she said that, probably half the kids either burst into tears or just put their heads down, like unable to speak. And I said, can you tell me more about not belonging at home? And it just started this conversation where kids were like, some were talking about the feeling of it, that it's the one place they feel the most left out. It's the one place they feel the least accepted. Other kids gave examples. You know, my parents were really athletic and popular. I'm not athletic. I'm not popular. I don't fit in with my family. I don't belong there. Um, And just this thing washed over me of for a middle schooler and yeah. and you know that age no yeah. for a middle schooler to say hey not belonging here is tough but there's nothing worse than not belonging at home yeah. you understood i felt the magnitude of it in my bones you you make this um this just the way you, you you make this observation. I think the way you make it is so helpful. You said, you know, it's partly because we are neurobiologically hardwired for belonging, connection. We're hardwired to want it and need it so much that the first thing we do is sacrifice ourselves and who we are to achieve it. The irony, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, we're desperate for it. I think if you look at, if you look from the lens of neurobiology or even evolutionary biology, um, as a social species, to not be wanted and to not belong to the tribe or the clan or the group meant death. I mean, Uh you know, we are wired for this. Uh It is um, John Cacioppo on the University of Chicago, who does this incredible work on loneliness, says, you know, that the only real biological advantage we have over most other species is our connection, our belonging, our ability to collaborate, plan, be in relationship with in special ways. And so that desperate need to belong is not is not a 
neurosis or it's not a ego-driven thing, that need to belong and be right. a part of something greater than us is who we are in our DNA. And in, I, mean, in fact, I love that also. And in fact, the, the, the genius, the source of the genius of our species, right? I mean, that's the implication. That's of it. That, it. I mean, it is. Mm-hmm. And so, yet, yeah. yet what we do, yet we do what we do to ensure that we're accepted and fit in, which is a totally hollow substitute for belonging. What we do to ensure that we're accepted and fit in ensures that we have no sense of belonging. So you use this language of true belonging. Mm -hmm. Um, So talk about what are the qualities of true belonging as opposed to that that those many things we do that feel like belonging, but as you say, are, are a hollow substitute for true belonging. What is that? Well, you know, when I started looking into belonging and I started really wanting to understand the bones of belonging, like what does it mean? What, how, do, how do we, like from a researcher's perspective, um, and probably my own personal armor, um, <laughs> yeah. Really, yeah. is what? Yeah. What are the data here? Yeah. Like, what? What exactly <clears throat> is happening here? Um, and I think the first thing that was surprising to me is that at the very heart, and I think there's an amazing synergy between my work and your work around this topic because I think at the heart of belonging is spirituality. Mm-hmm. And not religion, not dogma, but spirituality and a very important specific tenet of, of spirituality, which I believe cuts across faith and denomination and belief system. And by spirituality, I mean the deeply held belief that we're inextricably connected to each other by something greater than us. Mm-hmm. And that thing that is greater than us is rooted in love and compassion, that there's something bigger than us and that we are connected to each other in a way that cannot be severed. And so when I started to look at belonging, what I realized is that it is a spiritual practice and it's the spiritual practice of believing in ourselves and belonging to ourselves so fully that we find what's sacred in not only being a part of something, like our DNA calls us to be, but also we find sacred the need on occasion to stand alone in our values, in our beliefs, when we're called to do that as well. Mm-hmm. And so to me, this idea of true belonging is a type of belonging that never requires us to be inauthentic or change who we are, but a type of belonging that demands who we are, that we be who we are, even when we jeopardize connection with other people. Even when we have to say, I disagree. That's not funny. I'm not on board. Right. So I think all the way through this, this thinking and writing you do, and especially as it continues to develop. You know, you use the word paradox a lot. I also overuse the word paradox. Um, but the thing is, like, that sounds like a, 
you know, kind of an academic, can sound like an academic word, but in fact, it is just a description of the way life works. And the fact mm. that we are not, <laughs> like, we are not a combination of either ors. We are we are just this multitude of both ands, like right at any given moment. Yes. So like, so, so, so this thing, um, belonging, the spiritual practice of belonging is also being able to stand alone when called to do so. And then also like, so just, and the whole idea of being alone and the difference. So the, earlier this year, I was um, like the contrast of that with loneliness, which is this crisis, right? But that, that somehow mm-hmm. also to combat this crisis of loneliness, we have to learn this spiritual practice of being alone as part of being able to stand alone when we're called to do that as part of the, thing, the practice of belonging. Yeah, I mean, it sounds so, you know, it's like I always think about the Latin like paradoxum, like this, the source of the word means seemingly absurd, mm-hmm. but really true. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. what we're both saying sounds like crazy, but I think our... I think our need to push away the word paradox and the need to, our need for either or, Mm -hmm. not and, is driven by our lack of capacity for vulnerability. It's really hard to straddle the tension of yes and. Yeah. It's really hard to straddle that yes, I want to belong, I want to be a part of something bigger than me, and I'm willing to stand alone when I need to. Mm. And it's also hard to say, look, what if loneliness is driven often by changing who we are, being perfect, saying what we're supposed to say, doing what we're supposed to do. What if loneliness is driven in part by our lack of authenticity? That what I can go to a party and I can be the bell of the ball and come home completely disconnected, yeah. lonely, anxious, because never once during that experience was I myself. I was who I want. I thought they wanted me to be. Yeah. You know, and so I do think. I don't want it to be true, to be honest with you, Krista. Like, I think in some ways it kind of sucks that your level of true belonging <laughs> yeah. can never be greater than your willingness to be brave and stand by yourself. I kind of hate it a little bit. Yeah. But it's just what I found. It's just. It's how the men and women that have the highest levels of true belonging show up in their lives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to kind of get to the bigger picture here. I mean, earlier this year, I was, I was, I was talking to somebody about Hannah Arendt and the origins of totalitarianism. I was so amazed to go back into that book and read her talking about loneliness as a modern phenomenon and saying things like loneliness is the breeding ground of terror. Um, you, I think it's really important, and you and I are both connected in some ways with these wonderful um, young people, Casper Terkyle and Angie Thurston, who are working, you know, who are like see, ending mm. loneliness as a calling of their generation. Yeah, they're amazing. The, right? Because of the crisis in that generation um, and all of us. Um, you, you know, again, like words, like you, you know, you make these distinctions that I think are helpful between standing alone and lonesome and lonely, and that those are not all the same thing. No, I think 
you know, for me, I think I feel more connected to myself and everyone who matters to me in those moments when I am standing alone in the wilderness because that's what I have to do to stand up for my values and my beliefs. When I'm not backing down, when I'm not kissing someone's ass, when I'm not agreeing just to shut down an argument or when I'm really saying, I hear you, I want to keep having the conversation, I just don't see it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, In those moments, I feel connected to myself. I feel connected to other people. I feel connected to something that is just a current that runs under the ground that we're all standing on. But in those moments when I sell myself out, when I choose fitting in with someone over belonging to myself, I just don't know that there's a more lonely on the outside feeling that I can that I can imagine in my life. I mean, when you're with people, I mean, everyone knows this. Like in my family, we call it the lonely feeling. Like we we named it so our kids could articulate it. Like yeah, I, re- feeling... I was going to ask you about that. That's so interesting. You like you're in your family. You'll say I've got that lonely feeling, or your kids will say mm-hmm. I had that lonely feeling. Yeah, and they'll say, mm-hmm. you know, I was with a group of friends and I had the lonely feeling. Mm-hmm. And I think we all know, everyone knows that experience of being surrounded by people and feeling completely alone. Yeah. <laughs> because I think you can be alone and with people because you're not connected to those people. There's no connection there. And so I love, again, Cacioppo's definition of loneliness as being on the outside looking in. When I stand up alone in the wilderness and take a stand on something I believe in or stand up for something I don't think is right or I do think is right, I feel connected to every other person who's made that pilgrimage through the wilderness. People I know, people I don't know but admire. Um, I don't feel lonely. So... So let's talk about how, again, we're in this deep territory of paradox, how what you're yeah. describing is not the kind, it is, abs- is the opposite of the standoffs that we have on every side of every, you know, mm. across the spectrum of our culture right now. It's like standing, standing up for what we believe in as a way of moving behind our defenses. Um, mm-hmm. So, so I think one way, a good way to get into that is, you know, you have done this research on the elements of belonging, true belonging, when that's really happening. And one, and so the first, the first element is people are hard to hate, close up, move in. So, so, so again, what you're talking about is not the stance of moving through the world, being solitary and righteous, self-righteous. No. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that we've seen and, you know, I write about this in this chapter called High Lonesome, which is like my favorite tradition in bluegrass is High Lonesome. It's Mm. kind of Bill Monroe and this kind of wailing and and sorrow captured in music. And I, I talk about this high lonesome culture that we're living in right now where we are the most sorted that we've ever been in terms of we most of us no longer 
even hang out with people yeah. that disagree with us politically or ideologically. No, we so don't. We're sorting. S-O-R-T. Sorting. Sorted. Yeah, sorted. sorted. Yeah, like not, sorted as, as opposed yeah. to sorted. Yeah, as, exactly. Yes, ID. Yeah, <laughs> we I might be pretty sorted right now, too. So I just wanted to. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. We're, we've sorted ourselves into. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we've sorted ourselves into kind of ideological bunkers. Mm-hmm. And. More and more, we live next to people who believe like us, we worship with, we go to school with, we go grocery shopping. You know, we have really, because we find, because it's such a, it, the, we find other people's beliefs so culturally offensive that we really don't want to be around people that think differently than us. And what's so crazy is how that kind of social demographic changing of sorting into these ideological bunkers tracks exactly with increasing rates of loneliness. Yeah. And so I would argue that, and this goes back to your paradox, um, I would argue that when we build ideological bunkers and we hide out behind them, nine times out of 10, the only thing I have in common with the people behind those bunkers is that we all hate the same people. Yeah. And having shared hatred of the same people or the same, I call it common enemy intimacy. Yeah, right. I, that's that, such a good phrase. Yeah. Like our, our, our connection is just an intimacy created by hating the same people mm-hmm. is absolutely not sustainable. It's counterfeit connection. It's not real. And the moment that you disagree, you question, you get curious, you lean into the other side, quote unquote, mm-hmm. to, to, to try to understand more and build bridges, you're in dangerous territory with the people behind those bunkers. So, it's, so not, it's not true belonging. It's, oh, God, it's not true yeah, belonging. Yeah. It's hustling of mm-hmm. the worst magnitude. I mean, it's just hustling. And so my question was for the men and women who really carried this sense of true belonging in their hearts, they didn't negotiate it with the world. They carried it internally. They brought belonging wherever they went because of their, because of their strength and their spiritual practice around it. What did they have in common? And so this first practice of true belonging is, is you know, people are hate to, they're hard to hate close up, move in. Like when you are really struggling with someone and it's someone you're supposed to hate because of ideology or belief, move in, get get curious, get closer, ask questions, try to connect, find something, remind yourself of that spiritual belief of inextricable connection. How am I connected to you in a way that is bigger and more primal than our politics. So, you know, what, I'm <clears throat> what I want to say here may just be so obvious, but I feel like saying it just to underline it. So, you know, again, a minute ago when we were talking about belonging and you were talking about, you know, the spiritual pra- practice of standing alone and standing up for what you believe um, when, when we're called to do so. Language like that right now in our culture um, points at a lot of posturing over and against, right? Or not just posturing. I mean, there are things to stand up against and about, right? But, but, but um, 
actually, I think the real spiritual, or at least hand in hand with that, the spiritual practice you're pointing at is reclaiming our belonging, our human belonging, and having a courage to stand alone in our own groups to transcend that the kind of tribal politics. Is that fair? It's, yes. It's exactly I mean like it's exactly it's exactly right. So that we defy this sorting. So we just say yeah. we're not going to live this way. You know, I've probably been in front of, let me think realistically, 25,000 people um, since this book came out on a book tour across the United States. And every time I ask the audiences, raise your hand if you deeply love someone whose vote in 2016 you find incomprehensible mm-hmm. and 99% of hands go up yeah. and yeah. we have to find a way like, you know, then I ask how many of you are willing to sever permanently your relationship with the person you love because of their vote um, and maybe one or two hands goes up. I'm not. I'm personally not yeah. willing to do that. I have people I love, family members, um, whose their politics and some, on some issues I find in, I really not. I just can't wrap my head, my head or my heart around it. But I'm going to keep leaning in. I'm going to keep staying up for what I believe in, and I'm going to keep leaning in with curiosity, questions, conversation, um, because I'm working from a premise that I am inextricably connected to that person by something greater than me. Now, I'm not going to tolerate abuse or I'm not going to tolerate dehumanizing language. I'm not going to have a curious and open dialogue with someone whose politics insists on diminishing my humanity. Those are lines that were very clear with the research participants. But short of that, I'm going to lean in. And I'm going to stay curious. Yeah, I mean, boundaries is a big word in in <laughs> your writing yeah. now. That and and again, it it can sound like a paradox, but of course, we all know it's true. Like boundaries and true belonging go together. Um, you know, Brene, I was um, I <laughs> the question I wrote down when I was thinking was like, uh, I was thinking, you know, I want to ask Brene if she's surprised that we're in this place, because I'm one of the few people, I feel one of the few people I know who is constantly in conversations about like, how did this happen? Is saying, just because I I think you and I both have always been watching the human condition angle of things. Mm -hmm. And from the human condition angle of things, we've been walking into this. Um, Mm -hmm. I was looking at, um, at, at the, the transcript of our conversation in 2015. And, you know, I quoted something at you that you said that feeling Vulnerable, imperfect, and afraid is human. It's when we lose our capacity to hold space for these struggles that we become dangerous. And then I said, it seemed to me now that's one way to describe what is happening in our culture and political life. And I feel like we have continued to walk into that to an extreme that, I mean, you know, when I say I'm not surprised, I'm dismayed, heartbroken, right? But we could have seen this coming. I mean, you, I want to read what you said then, too, because it's, it's just so – it's more true now. You said, I'm hoping it's not wishful thinking, but I'm thinking we've grown um, – yeah, you kind of agreed that on this micro level, we're not our best selves in fear, and the national conversation has been centered on 
what we are supposed to be afraid of and who's to blame for it. And then you said, I'm hoping it's not wishful thinking, but I'm thinking we've grown weary of that. I think we're sick of being afraid, and I think there's a growing silent majority of people who are really kind of thinking at a very basic human level, I don't want to spend my days like this. I don't want to spend every ounce of energy I have ducking and weaving. I don't know where we'll go next, but I really believe with every fiber of my professional and personal self that we won't move forward without some honest conversations about who we are when we're in fear and what we're capable of doing to each other when we're afraid. I mean, that's Can I take so, it back? Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to? No, I'm not surprised about where we are at all. I yeah. mean, is it possible to oh, be both that, heartbroken and not yeah. surprised? Yeah. You mean that hopefully that we were going to... Well, but, you know, we also have such a short view of time. I mean, I still... No, no. I still... Sorry, go on. Yeah. No, no, I, I definitely stand by what I said, and yeah. I do believe in the longer... You know, and the longer story, mm-hmm. I think that's true. But we are, I only want to take it back because I, you know, I just, I'm not surprised at no, all. No. I remember there was a day, I, I remember there was a day where I looked at Steve and I said, my husband and said, let me tell you how this is going to go. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I think you're crazy. And I was like, mm-hmm. I know. but mm-hmm. And he's like, but I'm scared because you know people. And I said, yeah, because the thing is, we have been in such deep fear. Yeah. And let me tell you something. When people are in, in, fe- in fear and in uncertainty, and we live in a, we live in a culture that has no capacity for the vulnerable conversations that have to come around that fear. Right. For actually facing the fear, right? For actually facing letting it. That's right. the pain and the right. fear show themselves as pain and fear. That's right. Mm-hmm. If you have a if you have a leader who will who leverages that fear, gives you people to blame for it. And then promises to deliver you from your pain and your fear by hurting the people that you blame, that person will always win. Mm-hmm. I mean, that person will always win. And, I mean, if and, you, that, and that is if we are not otherwise tending to that fear in our midst, right? Yes, if, if we're not dealing with it. If that fear is sitting there waiting yeah. to be spoken to somehow. If it's burrowed, metastasized. Mm-hmm then it can be leveraged. Mm-hmm. Now you hold fear in front of you and you say, we're fearful. We're in so much uncertainty. There's so much change. It's such a rapid rate. Um, if you hold fear in front of you, it doesn't dictate your behavior. Um, but I don't, you know, I think... There's there's two things, and it's interesting because I was hoping we could talk about this because I would love to know what you think about this. Um, and I think about it from not just politics and ideology right now, but also things like the opiate addiction. I think mm-hmm. we've lost – because we've lost it, it, our capacity for pain and discomfort, we have transformed that pain into hatred yeah. and blame. Yeah. It's like it's so much easier for people to cause pain than it is for them to feel their own pain. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, you talk about that, that it, it takes courage to, and to, allow yourself to allow yourself to feel pain. It's not. 
it's not a comfortable option. I mean, the other thing I think is that we we actually we we reward outrage. I mean, we treat outrage and anger and argument as powerful, respected tools in our life together. And we don't reward um, or make or create spaces where it would be actually trustworthy or reasonable to invite people to show their fear and their pain just as that, right? That vulnerability. It's funny because I think that's changing. Um, and I don't, you know, one of the things I'm super curious about, um, can I just interview you now? I've got a lot of questions for you, Krista. <laughs> I'll, I do have I'll a lot of questions for you. I'll keep this on track. You. All right. <laughs> okay. So here's my question for you. That that kind of respect for the bombastic, postured, raging kind of thing, as opposed to putting value on hard, tension, paradox-filled conver- conversation that you just talked about. So the one place I see this shifting is more and more in the corporate sector. Mm. More and more, there's, there, there is a waning tolerance for that kind of behavior and leadership. Yeah. And it just, for me, begs the question that right now, with the, with the Me Too movement and this reckoning we're having around sexual violence and sexual harassment and assault of women, we see again the corporate sector taking really firm, hard stands on this while we see zero movement in the government and politicians. Yeah. And we see corporate sector really questioning that their tolerance for the bombastic, raging, you know, shut people down, speak at, not to. It's unusual... I guess for me, I wonder what's happening. Can you tell me what's happening? <laughs> um, uh, no, I'm gonna, well, I'll just say a little, and then I'm going to turn it back to you. No, so I, I agree with you that, that I think there's a generational shift altogether. And, and ironically, workplaces and corporate sphere is more sensitive to that. Like it's bubbling up and having an effect, whereas our political life is just such a in such a tangle. So like that one place, unfortunately that one place is where we look to see where leadership is and what's important and what's powerful. But like mm, I feel like if we can just good. buckle our seatbelts, like this is a 20-year process, right? So like I mm-hmm. do think it's coming up in all kinds of places. And it's mm-hmm. real. I agree with you. Like you said this it's the silent majority, the growing silent majority of people, I think that is still there. I think it's stronger than it was 2 years ago, but I somehow do too. we have this thing, this 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 metastasized thing, you know, right? That we have to somehow it has to work its way through our system. All right, so we're going to move on from me. Um but but like so 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 I think this gets also to so the second element of belonging from your research, again, feels like like a contradiction. 
Um, but it's exactly what we need now, which is like you say, speak truth. And I'm going to, because this is public radio, I'm going to say it here, but then we'll, I'm going to say, speak truth to bullshit, speak truth to BS, and be civil. Um, which also, like, we're going to have to come up with a whole new understanding of what civility is. I always use like words like muscular and adventurous. Like, how do you, what is this civility we have to develop, which will let in pain and fear and true belonging? So I really wrestled with that. And so just for just for my knowledge, um, so I should say BS. Is that right? Is that the better yes, way to do BS that? say BS or they'll have to bleep you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it won't be my first bleep, but it'll be definitely my most highbrow bleep for okay. sure on public radio. Um, I was really curious about what civility is and what it looks like, too. I didn't, I didn't come into the research. I mean... I didn't expect civility to emerge in the research as a big construct. And so when it did, like this idea that we have to speak truth to BS, we have to find a way in a culture where truth is becoming less and less yeah. important, yeah. we have to way, find a way to speak truth. You know, empirical evidence, like truth to BS but we have to do it while we're while we're civil. We have to stay civil while we're doing it. Otherwise, we're not accomplishing it. So as I started looking and doing a research review and trying to understand what civility was, I mean, I came across this definition um, from a nonprofit based in Houston, the Institute for Civility and Government, um, that it's Cassandra Donkey and Thomas, Tom, I think it's Tomas Spath, um, both, I think, I, I, I'm going to go on a limb here. I think they're both Presbyterian ministers, actually. Um, I'm getting a yes, yes. Um, have to, have crafted this definition of civility that I think is brilliant. Um, that civility is claiming and carry for, caring for one's identity, needs, and beliefs without degrading someone else's in the process. Mm. I mean, it, it goes mm -hmm. on for another, like, 10 mm -hmm. lines. Mm -hmm. But if we could just get that part, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think we'd have it nailed. So claiming and caring for my identity and my needs and my beliefs without degrading yours. And, and I feel like you're like the third, the third um, leg of these, these four elements of belonging, strong back, soft front, wild heart, kind of starts to get at what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think... That to me, um, I first heard the, the I first heard the the saying "strong back, soft front" from Joan Halifax, who's yeah. a Buddhist teacher, and I, it spoke to me at the time. And I thought, I don't know what that is, but it sounds, of course, paradoxical, and I don't like it um, <laughs> because it sounds hard. I'd rather have a strong front and a strong back and a strong everything. Right. Um, but then, when I was doing this research. I just, it went back to my work on Daring Greatly and Rising Strong, that what we need is a strong back. We need the courage and we need the soft front of vulnerability. I have to, our deepest human need is to be seen by other people, to really be seen and known by someone else. And if we're so armored up and we walk through the world with an armored front, yeah. We can't be seen. And so I think when you go back to speaking truth to BS and being civil, 
it requires that strong back, but it requires that soft front that isn't, okay, am I crazy or do I remember reading in your book something that said one of the greatest acts of courage is to be vulnerable with someone with whom we disagree? Yeah, that's from Francis Kissling. Yeah. But from your book, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where I read it. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking when I read it, boy, now that's a measure of courage right there. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that is that soft front, but it is also the strong back. I'm going to be vulnerable, which means I'll lean into uncertainty. I'll lean into some risk. I'll lean into some emotional exposure, but I have a strong back. And the wild heart for me is, goes back to the wilderness that I'm not afraid of the wilderness. I'm not afraid of that space where I share an opinion and I look around and I'm just surrounded by, you know, the wilderness. I don't see anybody standing next to me or behind me. It's just my opinion. Um, and it's my belief. And it's me. And so I do think that's required for civility and the courage to speak truth. That that wild heart, I love that language. And that reminds me of something that you 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 actually said when when we spoke last time and and it, it it's funny because I I think of this as a poem. It's five lines. <laughs> it's like most of us are brave and afraid at exactly the same time all day long. And you talk about the wild heart is at one and the same time, tough and tender and brave and afraid, all at the same time. Yeah. Talk- it is. That's, I mean, that's, that's literally, if I raise my kids... To have that wild heart that can be, you know, grit and grace, tough and tender, excited and scared, you know, that can hold the tension of those things. That's all I can ask. And I'm sure this question comes up in as you're out there in the world talking to people. When you... When you talk about softness and vulnerability, and when we're talking about something like that in the context of our very heated, at times dangerous, um, <laughs> public space, um, you're not. I think like the talk about why you, you know you are saying we have we have to be brave, we have to be adventurous, but it's not about making yourself unsafe. I mean, it is, it is, and it's not like, or that that we're not all that's in certain situations. Like everybody is not called to have a soft heart in every situation. You know what I'm saying? Like I struggle with this, and this question comes up because there are people who are on front lines of danger. So how do you like talk about like how, where those boundaries are and how to think about that distinction? Yeah, I mean, I think there are some real cultural issues. I think mm-hmm. one of the greatest casualties of trauma is the loss of the ability to be vulnerable. And so when we define trauma as, you know, oppression, sexism, racism, I I have no choice but to leave my house with my armor on right. and carry the 20 tons of that through my day. 
no matter how crippling it is, no matter how heavy it is, because I am not physically safe in a world or this environment. I mean, that's why I, you know, when I work with teachers, I tell them all the time, you may be creating the only space in a child's life where he or she can walk in, hang up their backpack and hang up their armor Mm -hmm. only for the hour or two hours this child is with you, can they literally take that off? Um, but what's, I think, again, the tension is that, you know, the data-driven definition of vulnerability is uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. And one of the things I talk about all the time when I'm working with leaders, I mean, I've, I, every, you know, from CEOs to special forces troops, I always ask the same question, most recently NFL teams. Give me an example of courage that you've seen in your life or that you yourself have engaged in any act of bravery that did, did that was not completely defined by vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Give me one example of courage that you've ever witnessed that did not require require uncertainty, risk and emotional exposure. No one has to this day, even special forces, I mean, even when Navy <laughs> SEALs can't tell you, yeah. then no one can tell you. Like, mm-hmm. because the problem is there is no courage without vulnerability. But we're all, we're all taught to be brave. And then we're all warned growing up to not be vulnerable. Yeah, right. And so that's the rub, you know, that's, that's, and so when you have bravery without vulnerability, that's when you get what what we're looking at today. Mm. All bluster, all posturing, no real courage. Mm. Um, you know, I the I just recently um, inter- did a conversation with two people, um, including. Um, Whitney Kimball Kimball Coe, who's part of something called the National Rural Assembly, which I had never heard of before. And it's this um, composed of a lot of people who are, they call themselves homecomers. I mean, it's it's people in these, in these, in our towns and, you know, rural areas all over the country that are, you know, very simplistically put on the losing side of globalization's equations and (coughs) on the losing side of um, a lot of... um, what's happened so quickly in this early century. Um, and I, we got this email, and I was so I was moved by it, and I thought, oh, I can bring this to Brene. <laughs> um, so here's Yikes. what she said, because it really, it's like, so it kind of brings this down to earth, what we're talking about here. You yeah. know, she said, I just listened to the episode, and for someone living in a small western town, it was a lifesaver. I would really love to hear something that is focused directly on how to cope with fear um, she said, especially for progressives living in small, rural, conservative-leaning towns with very little ethnic diversity, there can be a pervading sense of fear, both for ethnic minorities and for progressive activists. In addition, as a writer, I received my fair share of troll attacks on Twitter. And while this isn't uncommon, I struggle a great deal with carrying fear while trying to continue doing my work. I, I want to say I want I want you to respond to that, and I also want to say you're you're very careful, and I appreciate this to to say that you know this kind of there's fear on every side of our of our cultural equation. So so this happens to be a progressive. So how would you 
this feels to me like such an important question, right? That line between just staying safe and being courageous. Yeah, I mean, I think that... I think there is fear on every side. And I think we are our very worst selves in fear. We are the Mm -hmm. most dangerous to ourselves and to each other, and even to the people we love and we're in fear. And so when you have a situation where you've got, you're in a small town, you're either an ethnic minority, you're a progressive, um, or, you know, whoever you are, there's got to, here's the thing that I thought was so important, that while the inextricable connection between human beings cannot be severed, it can be forgotten. Mm-hmm. And we need moments of collective joy and we need moments and experiences of collective pain. We need to find ways to come together in those moments. Mm-hmm. Um, and in small towns, there have to be, I mean, in big towns, it, it, there, we have to start having conversations. This is, this is where the only place I can think of in small towns where people can come together and actually have conversations, where people can make and hold space for that, are, are, are faith communities. Mm-hmm. And we're not doing it. Yeah, they're not doing it, and they often get divided. They're often divide bubbles too, they're, right? Yeah. But I would call upon. I mean, I think physical safety. Look, yeah. When I asked the men and women in the in that we researched that who the participants for the research, what are the limits of moving close to people that you disagree with? The two big pieces were physical safety, yeah. and dehumanization. Okay. And so I would say if your physical safety is at risk, mm-hmm. I don't think it's smart. I mean, I think if your physical safety is at risk, then I think your strong back and your soft front is about safety for you and for your family. Mm-hmm. Um, and to not understand that that's a truth for people is privilege. Mm-hmm. A lot of people mm-hmm. don't understand that that's mm-hmm. a reality for a lot of folks, but it, it is absolutely a reality. But this is also when I would call upon... You know, you said something interesting earlier when I asked you the question about why is corporate America out ahead right now of what's happening in politics? And you said, well, they are, except we keep looking to politics for what leadership should look like. There's something around local civic leaders bringing together people in small rural rural towns about... Faith leaders bringing together people. I mean, here's the thing. This is my bet, Krista. This is maybe in two years we'll be talking again. Yeah. Um, okay. We'll pull the transcript All and right. we'll say. Um, we're making yeah. a note right now. <laughs> yeah, make a note right now. <laughs> yeah. He or she who chooses comfort over courage and facilitating real conversations in towns and cities and synagogues and areas who need it. When you choose your own comfort over trying to bring people together and you're a leader, either a civic leader or a faith leader, your days of relevance are numbered. Okay. I like really. it. Really? Yeah. And truly. I yeah. mean, 
Yeah. It is it is one of those things that you bring together people who are in conflict, in fear of each other. You're not going to do it perfectly. You're going to you're it's going to be messy. It's not going to be great. You're going to be on the receiving end of a bunch of criticism for how you handled it. But to not opt into facilitating that when that's your role as a leader is the definition of privilege. Mm -hmm. To say, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do it Mm -hmm. because I can't do it perfectly and I can't ensure an ending that, you know, deserves a bow. Mm -hmm. That's just not brave. And I I do believe and I I do believe in this 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 idea, you know, what you said to me. Again, this growing, growing silent majority. Like I think, I think across our spectrum, across the political spectrum, ac- across every all of these chasms that we can name, there's so many more of us who long for that connection. Let's get back to for this belonging, to to stitch that back together again. There's so many more of us who want that than who. I mean, who wants this division? Really, I think it's who wants that. Right? It's. Is that rhetorical, or do you want me to do you want me to give it a shot? I'll give <laughs> you it a can shot. Give it a shot. I don't. I think that I think there are people who want it, mm-hmm. and I'll tell I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. I think that there is a huge silent majority on both sides of the aisle who desperately want con- reconnection um, to come together to solve bigger problems than hating each other. I think that there are people that most of us, the vast majority of us, are desperate for it. That doesn't mean we have the skills to do it, but I think we're desperate for it, which is why it's a, just a call to leaders of every sector to stand up, create some space, mm-hmm. call in help if you need it, and mm-hmm. start having the conversations. Mm-hmm. But I absolutely believe that there is a small sliver of people with a tremendous amount of power whose power rests completely on us staying divided. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I absolutely think that when you see an administration throwing fuel on fires around race, around the NFL, around poverty, around, around simple things, where the only... The only, if you stand back and watch it and don't engage in it, what you see is the purposeful creation of a divisive union, a divided union. Mm-hmm. And there are absolutely people whose power rests on that. Yeah. And so, but I don't think those people represent the majority of liberals, conservatives, progressives, Republicans, Democrats. I think we're all much more the same than different. Yeah. And I think this is a good um, way to to come into that fourth pillar of true belonging from your research to like bring this really close to the ground, which is also where it happens, right? I mean, with, mm-hmm. among humans, probably in physical spaces. Um Hold hands with strangers. There's a period in there. Hold hands with strangers. Talk about what what that is. What? Yeah, it's about the research participants who had the highest levels of true belonging sought out experiences of collective joy 
and collective pain. Um, Durkheim, the French sociologist, called this experience collective effervescence. And interestingly, he was trying to understand kind of the voodoo magic that he believed happened in churches. Mm. Like, what is this thing that <laughs> where where people seem transcendent, they're connected, they're kind of moving in unison, there's a cadence and song and rhythm. Um, and he tried to understand what it was. And what he realized is, and that's what he named collective effervescence, mm. it's the coming together and shared emotion. And we have that today. We have opportunity. Like, like, trust me, I'm from Houston. I know. I, I was all- going to say, I mean, you've just gone through one of those experiences where this rises up in a way I've no gone one would have wished for. Yeah, two. Yeah, I've gone through two. So I've gone through Harvey, mm-hmm. which... You know, there we are, six feet of water in our street. My husband's in a kayak that happened to be in our garage because my son had had a Boy Scout kayak trip. Um, So he's in a kayak pulling neighbors and pets out of houses. Um, We're one of only four houses left on our street. Everything else has been torn down since Harvey. Everyone lost everything. Um, You have the... You know, the Cajun Navy, which is 400 fishermen and women coming from Louisiana and, you know, swamp boats and jet skis and fishing boats, pulling people out of houses. Never once during this tragedy, which is still unfolding here in Houston, will be in pain for a long time around yeah, it. Yeah. But never once did someone say, hey, I'm here to help. Who did you vote for? <laughs> um, that just didn't happen. We just reached out and it was collective. Yeah. It was collective pain. It was collective struggle. But we saw hope in each other's eyes and stories. And then you fast forward, you know, to baseball season. And we've had this incredible experience of collective joy with the Astros oh, winning okay. the World Series. <laughs> That's what yeah. you mean. All right. Yes. <laughs> okay. It was it was really it was, you know, I could give just a short story. Like I'm at the the last game, playoff game against the Yankees. Uh, I'm standing, I'm with another couple, me and Steve, and like, you know, the game of inches, as they say, watching every pitch, watching every batter. I cannot take my eyes off. I'm a big sports person, so I am glued. And it's like the second to last batter. And I stick my hand and, you know, I shove my hand down in my husband's back pocket. And I'm like kind of holding on to his rear, you know, like ready. And the guy next to me goes, excuse me, ma'am. And it wasn't even my husband. Uh, he had got up to go to the bathroom. And when he came back, he stood at the end of the aisle. And um, but this guy was like, but uh, go Astros. Um, and it was just this. When else are you singing with strangers, hugging strangers, high-fiving people around you? Like, these moments of collective joy, and they sound, you know, and they're moments of, Oliver Sacks says, you know, music needs no mediation. It pierces the heart directly. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. at a concert, you know, you're just singing your lungs out to you too. I'm holding hands with my kids who've never seen them before, and they know one of my favorites, you know. And I start crying because he's playing one of my favorite songs from the War album. And then my son, Charlie, gets teary-eyed, and he says, I know you love this, Mom. It's so great. Um, again, the connection between people is not, you can't sever it, but you can forget it. So to find moments of collective joy and pain and to lean in those into those with strangers reminds us of that something bigger. And tr- trust is another subject you've done a lot of research on and been talking about. And, you know, 
I have to say, I, I, we started a little late, but we're, we're, we're drawing to a close. But like, you was like, we're okay. Are we okay, Chris? To we like fifteen more minutes, okay? Because we obviously can't go into a trust in a big way here. But I do like. It seems to me that, um, in order for that, those moments also to to continue to be to to start to restitch us as a people, to restitch us together, or help us remember that, mm-hmm. that our belonging to each other. Um, like you, you note in your research that trust is made in very small moments. It seems to me it's also undone and, you know, but, 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 but when it's undone, like, how do you, what do you know about, like, can we, I don't know. It just feels like that's a big one for us because so much, there's been, there has been so much, there've been so many hateful things said. And again, like if everybody, even if everybody wasn't saying them, They've landed all across the spectrum of us. That's so beautifully put. It's mm-hmm. true. No matter mm-hmm. you know who said them, they've landed on us, haven't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think one of the reasons I dug into trust is because, again, in my work with leaders and teams and organizations, what I what I have observed and found is that if I work for you and you pull me into your office and you say, "Look, Brene, we've got to work on some trust issues." Basically, everything after the word trust is like the peanuts parent, like wah, 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 wah. I can't hear anything after the word trust because when you question someone's trustworthiness, um, it just makes us really limbic. It just makes us Mm. shut down and Mm. we can't hear. And so my goal was just try to understand kind of what is the anatomy or the elements of trust? What is what are we talking about behaviorally when we talk about whether we trust someone or not? And so what we found is that trust is really about seven elements, and we use the acronym BRAVING. And so trust is about boundaries, reliability, accountability, um, confidentiality, or what we call the vault, integrity, non-judgment, and generosity. Am I generous in my assumptions towards you when something goes wrong, or do I immediately assume the worst about your intentions? And so when I think trust has fallen apart, on a cultural level. It's like one of the conversations we're having right now about, again, the sexual harassment, yeah. sexual violence mm-hmm. reckoning, and the Me Too movement. Um, and everyone's like complaining about the lack of legitimacy and the, and the apologies. Well, we're so far away from apology time. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, we, we haven't even acknowledged what the hurt is. We haven't even acknowledged the pain that it's caused people. We've acknowledged that it's happened, but there's been no reckoning about the cost to these women and these men. Yeah. Yeah. Their cost to their psyche, yeah. to their careers, to their lives, to their self-worth. I mean, and so to build trust again, we have to think about those elements. How and where do we start building boundaries again? And boundaries is like a big gauzy word, but it's a really simple thing. Mm-hmm. What's okay and what's not okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's it. Here's what's okay. Here's what's not okay. That's really Reliable. helpful. That's really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I think it's reestablishing trust. Isn't it? I mean, like, yes, of course, it has an emotional cerebral level. But you're talking like it's these really practical steps towards it's that. It's super practical. Mm-hmm. Reliability. Reestablishing mm-hmm. that you do what you say and you say what you do. Mm-hmm. Period. There's reliability. There's accountability. Rather than blame or excuses or rationalizing, you own it. You acknowledge the pain it caused and you make amends. 
mm-hmm. you make amends. And what those are going to look like, I don't know. I think they're, it's probably up for a civil court in the case of the Me Too movement. Um, but you make amends. There has to be amends. If, if, if you don't acknowledge the pain that you've caused specifically and you don't make amends for it, there's no apology. Hmm, that's really, you know, yeah. The vault. I mean, to me, that's about two things. The vault is about confidentiality. And not only is it, you know, if, if I work for you, you may call me in and say, you know, Brene, we've done a lot of good trust work. There's one area we need to work on, and this is the vault. And I look at you and say, God, Krista, in five years, I've never repeated one thing that you've shared with me to someone outside. I've never, I've always held your confidence, you know, completely. And then you say to me, I believe you have, Brene, but the problem is you come into my office and you share information with me that's not yours to share. Mm -hmm. People don't understand the other side of confidentiality, which is appropriate sharing. Whose story is that to own and share? And then integrity about practicing the values that we believe and we profess are most important to us. Non-judgment in asking for help or delivering help. So Mm. part of trust is that I can ask you for help without feeling judged and Mm. I can need help without judging myself. And then, yeah, which is hard. I'm a much better helper than I am asker for help. <laughs> right. Um, and, I, and I probably need help more than I can offer help too, which is really a conundrum. Um, and then the last one is generosity. I work from a hypothesis of generosity with you. If things are not going well, I assume the best I can about your intention and your behavior, and I ask you about it. Um, so yeah. it's very specific behavioral things. There's going yeah. to be no... Yeah. Hallmark movie of regrown trust in this culture, in right? Our, in Where our everybody country. hugs and it's done. Yeah, no, right. There'll be no hugging. Well, there may let's let's there be, may be hugging there, and there probably will be the Hallmark movie, but still, <laughs> yes, it won't be the yes. whole story. Um, so, so I meant to bring your book into the studio with me, and I I I, I forgot, but there I I did want to, and I'm I'm just uh, we're, we're drawing to a close now, but there was a part of it where. Um, you, you were you were interviewing somebody who who you're drawing out on these things you're learning about how we do all this stuff. And I think mm-hmm. one thing I really appreciate about your writing is that and and you know you like I did actually write this down. You know you you'll you'll the things like this were in your questions to her. You say one of my worst defenses when I get anxious or fearful in conflict is to put people on the stand. I break into vicious lawyer mode and depose people rather than listening. Uh, you know, it's terrible yeah. and it always ends badly, but it's how I get to being right. And there was another one. This is one I was going to read where you you talked about how you realize that when you're sitting with somebody having these hard encounters, you're just thinking ahead to what you're going to say next. Mm-hmm. And then when people do that to you, you hate it. And yeah. I think the, it was, the conversation was also also about like this happens in our families, right? It's, you know, it's yes. not just that this is about whether when if we go to civil gatherings. So talk about some of the like really practical things, you know, I mean, about how to how to like ratchet that back and like regain sort of be your be the people we want to be in those moments 
Yeah, I think you're talking about an interview that I did with Michelle Buck, who teaches at Kellogg, um, mm-hmm. the School of Business at Northwestern, and she was she teaches. I love the name of this. It doesn't. It's not conflict resolution. It's conflict yeah, transformation. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is mm-hmm. great. And so she, I asked her very specifically for the practical tips because I needed them yeah. for the holidays. Um, <laughs> right. But I, you know, I think the practical to me. The biggest takeaway that it sounds fluffy, but it's actually very tangible. The biggest takeaway for me in this book, and it actually changed how I parent my kids as well, is we've got to stop walking through the world looking for confirmation that we do not belong because we will always find it. And you have to stop walking. We have to stop walking through the world looking for confirmation that we're not enough because you will always find it. You will always, it's the confirmation bias. You will, if you're looking for confirmation you don't belong, you're going to find it. You look for confirmation you're not good enough, you're going to find it. We don't negotiate our belonging externally. It's not something that we negotiate with other people or groups of people. It's not we somebody else it. can give you. It's not somebody Yeah, no one can give it this. We carry this in our heart. Um, And so the most tangible behaviors that I have found, stay curious, be kind, and as Harriet Lerner has taught me, listen with the exact same amount of passion that you want to be heard. Hmm. Like, Hmm. really listen passionately. Like... I think I think you've I've heard you call it generous listening. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Be generous in your listening, like really. Even if and so it's it's I've really tried to change that in my life, and it's been such a game changer. The only thing that's causes I have to pause a lot now because I'm not working <laughs> I'm not working out my response in advance now, right, right. but I'm actually listening. So people will ask me something hard. You know, they'll be talking about something hard, and I'll be really focused and listening. And I'll be saying. <laughs> wait, did you mean this or this? And I'll be following up. And they're like, yeah, what do you think? And I'm like, crap, I don't know. I'm going to have to take a minute because I wasn't formulating. That's my plan <laughs> usually. Um, but I I think it's key. I think curiosity, kindness, and not negotiating our belonging, our self-worth externally, I think that could do a lot to move us in the right direction. Mm. You know, I, I just, I'm, I'm going to keep chewing on this, what you said when we first started talking about how our capacity for belonging, not just our desire, but our capacity is, is like is the genius of our species lies in that. And um, yeah. so that's the large context of what we're talking about and also about what we're talking about, like, hopefully is unfolding in generational time, if not in election cycle time. Um I want to ask you, like, and you know, um, so let me say this. I was thinking about this. You know, I love, I, you know, when you talk about how we need to find points of connection and joy, even mm-hmm. with strangers, especially with strangers mm-hmm. right now. I was thinking about how Dorothy Day, I love this, you know, this mm-hmm. picture of her with the San Francisco earthquake. She's eight years old, I think, watching people coming over in boats from Oakland. And like, she, as, as a child, like she sees that everybody around her, all these adults know how to take care of strangers. They knew how to do this all along. Mm-hmm. And then her question was, why can't we live this way all the time? I know. And I feel like what you're doing with your research 
in in a very practical way is like kind of shining a light on like what it would take like that actually actually that we have it in us and kind of breaking that down right i mean talking about the anatomy of trust or um these yeah. these very practical tools of behavior and how we are with each other um so and so i know you're out there having that conversation with that longing that is so alive so i just want to ask you like as we close you know what right now and this may be very different this week from what it was last week. Like, you know, right now, what, what makes you despair and, and where, where are you finding your hope? I think my despair is, you know, that movie, I don't remember what movie it was, where the line was, I can see dead people. Oh, uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, what I is forget it? the name of somebody's look. Somebody knows it behind the glass. What is it, Chris? <laughs> the sixth sense. Yes. <laughs> so, like, I think my despair is I can see fear in people. Like, I think that's mm. kind of maybe a gift from my work and maybe a curse. I don't know, but I think my despair is people still opt for causing pain rather than feeling it. <sighs> yeah. Um. And that is, that's just hard for me to see because I can see it. I, I just don't see the bolstery, confident, blustery person. I see the scared to death person holding on in a very desperate way that's causing people pain. So I think that's mm-hmm. hard. The hope is that when I think about Harvey and I think about the Dorothy Day thing, the, the quote, um, I don't think when we're our best selves with each other. I don't think that's what's possible between people. I believe that's what's true between people. Mm. And I don't think we have to work to make it true between people. I think we just have to get the stuff out of the way that's stopping it from happening. Mm. Such a joy. Thank you Mm. so much. I have so many more questions for you, Krista. Well, we need to have a meal sometime. <laughs> I would love that. I do. I really, I came in with a list. <laughs> well, my, my colleague said there's no chance in hell she's going to let you turn that thing around. <laughs> well, let's, um, yeah, I don't, I don't have a trip planned to Houston anytime soon, but I, I, I would love to, I hope, we've just got it. We must, surely our paths will cross in the flesh one they day They will soon. cross. I, I mean, yes. I feel like, I kind of feel like I'm crossing paths with you all the time, right? Like you're just, Me too. you're out there and I'm reading you and I'm hearing you and I'm hearing people talk about you and I'm having conversations about you. So thank you so much um, just for continuing to do this. And um, yeah, I'm just so glad you're out there and, and we will talk again soon, I'm sure. I can't wait. Yeah. Thank you. Thank have you. A, have a beautiful rest of your day. You too. And have a, have a great season. Thank you. Holiday you season. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.